severely messed Artists like their boots are torn to shreds The government will spoil your hopes and dreams By offering a useless retreat and scheme There's such amazing talent, why can't you see That the government has decimated the industry And now the years of hard work have been thrown away Just get a real job Hello and welcome to Just Get A Real Job, the podcast where we speak to emerging creatives and creatives alike from across the creative industries. I'm of course your host, Jamie McKinley, and just to really, really wind up, our editor-in-chief, Elliot Mitchell. I'm recording this week's intro from the top of Craig Lockhart Hill. So the audio might not be as good as usual because I'm recording this one on my phone. It's the first night since the clocks went forward, which is always great because it's spring and it's still light. It's light outside at eight o'clock. So what, that's sort of why I was like, let's let's try and do this intro outside today. And there's people about and they're looking at me. They give me some weird looks and I'm just, let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. <laughs> This is why when I listen to Adam Buxton's podcast, I'm, I do not understand how he can do this outside every, all the time. It, it would just, you know, that would just... I'm way too self-conscious for this. Um, well, that went well. I'm back at the house now. Uh, that was an absolute fail. I was considering just redoing the intro from scratch. But you know what? I thought I spent 10 minutes doing several takes trying to do the intro outside up that hill. And I was like, you know what? The listeners can hear um, my terrible attempt to try to do that. Uh, basically what happened was I was doing that and then this woman and her dog came and stood right next to where I was setting up this hill because um, I deliberately picked this really quiet spot and there was no one about at first and then I could see some people in the distance looking at me and I thought, right. And then this woman just stood right next to me and I just did, I just couldn't do it. I was just way too self-conscious. I waited for a bit. The sun started going down. I thought, right, I'll just well, go, go home and finish it there. So yeah, well, maybe uh, not bother trying to do outdoor intros again and um, we did a few last year and i enjoyed them but it drove elliot nuts so you can win this argument elliot you can win but anyway this week's episode is a brilliant conversation i think this might be one of the most inspiring chats we got to have on the podcast it was a real real privilege to have them on but this week on the podcast i was joined by dr parvinder shurgel and molly vandemer and I apologise again if I pronounce your names wrong. I've seen this to them at the time we were recording. I'm just I'm so bad at pronouncing people's names. And it's something I definitely need to get better at doing. But Molly and Pav are both amazing filmmakers. And they just collaborated on a short film called 12 Together, which they spoke to me about. They also spoke to me about sort of the importance of positively reframing how mental health is depicted on screen. We also spoke about the importance of representation in the film and TV industry. They spoke about their careers as well. Pav also talked about how she balances being a doctor and a creative as well which I thought was incredibly interesting and definitely a podcast first but between the both of them they're both just really really inspiring individuals and it was a real pleasure to have them on the podcast Um, I'm sure you're going to enjoy it Uh, just as well before I let this episode commence as always if you're enjoying this podcast this is the 73rd episode there's lots of amazing conversations for you to listen to in the back catalogue so if you enjoy this one and it's your first time listening be sure to go back and have a wee listen also if you can leave us a little review on apple podcasts or spotify wherever you listen to podcasts and if you enjoy it as well be sure to tell people to listen be sure to share it on social media all that stuff goes a long long way and helping us to keep growing as a podcast because we're an independent podcast we don't have a lot of money behind us we're doing this ourselves and all your support and help is greatly appreciated but anyway 
Here is episode 73 of Just Get A Real Job. Hello, well, normally in the podcast, we usually just have one guest, but today's episode is a bit different because we have two guests on, which we have done a few times in the past. But tonight, I'm very, very thrilled to be joined by Molly and have, well, do you want, do you, firstly, I think it might be easiest for the listeners just so they know who I'm talking to, but do you both want to sort of explain a bit about what you both do and who you are, and then we'll get into the, the proper interview. I was going to say, Pav, you can go first, but she was pointing at me, (laughs) if you insist. So I'm Molly and I'm a writer director and I've worked with Pav a few times. Originally, I worked with her as an AD and when she was acting in something and then we kind of teamed up and have started producing these films together. Brilliant. So, yes, I was just watching Molly and I forgot I had to speak. Hi, <laughs> I'm, hi I'm Pavinda. I'm, I have a few hats. So I'm, I'm a doctor. I'm also an actress, writer and producer, filmmaker as well. And I've been working with Molly for like just over a year now. And um, we're making some really great, I think, female led diverse films. Yeah, no, that's a lot of hats. You, you have a lot of hats. And I was, say, I was just saying to you before we started recording, you are the first doctor we'd ever had on this podcast, which is a... Uh, which is a first you know 70 odd episodes yeah, in. Last, yeah. <laughs> maybe who knows but thank you both for your time today. I'm very excited to speak to you and I know you have a film which is coming out soon as well which we'll get into 12 which we'll I'm sure we'll talk lots about but we like to sort of kick off the podcast by asking what people's earliest creative memories are so I'll let you decide between yourself who would like to go first but um do you remember what your earliest creative memories are? Yeah, actually, it's really funny. Well, not funny, but as in for me, it was actually my dad. And if you just imagine my dad, my dad was a turban. I'm South Asian British. And he, my very first, like even speaking, like in reading was poetry. And he taught me poetry as a young girl. And I still remember some of the stuff he taught me. So that was like my first sort of entrance into creativity was via my dad just at home just reading poetry together. Would you remember what sort of poetry it was you were reading and stuff? It was, was it like... always, it was such a male-dominated world in the poetry world. So it was a of lot course. of like old-fashioned, like Keats. I remember my very first one I learned was like Tiger, Tiger, Burning Night in the Forest of the Night. Oh my God, it's like all coming back to me. <laughs> so it was a lot of very sort of long-winded poetry, but it, I loved it. Like, and it was, it wasn't really the poetry I loved. It was just that bonding time with my dad. And I think that mm. connection you have with someone through creativity my dad's a lawyer and funnily enough so is Molly's dad it's very funny um (laughs) but it was just so nice because my dad was born in this country and his parents came from India so I always find it really I always find it personally really fascinating how someone you know my dad is conservative he had an arranged marriage has a turban yet he loves poetry like English proper poetry so I I always really loved those kind of memories we had and um those are actually kind of the only things we ever did together really because he was the one that used to take me to the cinema so he introduced me to film very early on and just reading and writing. So he wrote his first book when I was growing up. So I think it's really down to him, even though he's a very strict, traditional Sikh man, you know, with a beard and he's very stern. I always find it very ironic that he's the one that actually introduced me to this creativity, which is so strange to me, but I love. Oh, that's really interesting. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, and Molly, what do you remember what your earliest creative memory was? So I was thinking about this one. And funnily enough, it was writing and directing plays that I kind of <laughs> made all of my family members and friends be in. So the amount of hours and hours my poor parents had to sit through. And it mainly consists of my brother. So I just had one sibling, my younger brother, and I'd make him do all this with me. And I'd always try and make him an 
inanimate object or an animal because if I didn't he would steal the show he'd go off script and start improvising and I just get so frustrated like stick to the script so my brother was definitely the most difficult person I've ever had to direct (laughs) even to this day but yeah so I think just writing and directing in quotation marks when I was a child is like some of the earliest memories and then I also remember kind of doing creative writing at school and winning a prize and that was like the first prize I ever won for it so I think that's why it kind of stuck in my mind. Mm. Do you remember what the the creative writing was about like the first Um, one? I it was like a short story you had to (laughs) such a classic writer it was probably like so depressing but it was just I remember writing about a tear or something for like half a page that's the thing that sticks (laughs) in my mind. Yeah and then I got to go in the golden book in our primary school so like your name got written in it and why you were in it and then you got to go read out your short story to all the other classes which of course I love doing. <laughs> oh class that's great well thank you both for sort of sharing your earliest creative memories and the next question we'd really like to ask on the podcast is about where people are from and how where they're from has sort of influenced them as creative people so firstly as I was saying before I'm not as prepared for this interview as I normally am so where firstly where are you both from where did you both sort of grow up? Okay <laughs> I'm from London so I'm from South London And yeah, thinking about how it's influenced me, I was thinking about how much of a diverse cultural hub it is. And I was exposed Mm. to that from quite early on. And I was fortunate enough to be able to go to the theatre a lot as a child. So originally I wanted to go more into the theatre world. My aunt was an actress, so she used to take me to lots of things. And my mum and my granny loved the theatre as well, so they took me. So I think just because I grew up in South London, Mm. you're just fortunate enough to have a lot going on around you. So I think that influenced me from quite early on. Yeah, that's a very common answer on the podcast to people that are from London. It's always sort of, our big cities in general, sort of talk about how they had access to all these creative spaces and how that really influenced them. Which is interesting because it's often the opposite for people like myself who come from sort of maybe smaller towns and didn't have that. It's almost like they retreated into things like films and music because it was like a way of escapism um, that they maybe didn't have. So yeah, I always find that very interesting. Uh, What about yourself, Pat? So my parents grew up in the Midlands and then, but raised me and my sister like in a very tiny village where we were the only brown family near Windsor. So I grew up literally like with horses opposite us and sheep. And I mean, I loved it and my parents are still there. But then I went to school in West London So I had a really strange, well, I had a really strange upbringing because on one side, it was very Indian, very traditional. Like I wasn't, you know, it's very strict. Like you have to be vegetarian, you can't drink, smoke, et cetera. So you have that one side of that Asian culture, which I love. And then the other side was very British. Like I was on the fencing team and I went to an all girls (laughs) school and, you know, so I was the only like Asian girl in my school. So I had a really mix of like sort of East and West kind of upbringing which I really appreciated and I think that's really actually made me the woman I am because I have people it's very strange because I don't fit really in the community because my Asian community are like oh you're a coconut you know (laughs) and they mean basically you're too British for us but then I'm too Indian to be British you know what I mean so I I think and also because I went to an all-girls school for so long and it was in West London and I think it really stemmed my academic sort of education thirst 
yeah. to really want to prove myself, especially in London as a woman of colour. So I think I just kind of had a mixture of different upbringings. And um, I think that's why I'm so curious and why I always want to wear so many different hats, because it's like, yes, I can do fencing, but I can be a doctor, but I can be an actress, <laughs> but hey, I can be a producer. So I, I kind of don't like to be put in a box. And I think that's because of my upbringing, because my parents moved away from like the hub of the Asian culture to the countryside so I was very much in my own thoughts and they kind of wanted me to have all different kinds of like upbringings together. Mm. No that's very really really interesting thank you for being so honest about your experiences as well I find that like an interesting idea of how you almost feel like that's why you want to have so many different hats because it's like you feel like you can sort of jump between things in a way that, that's a very interesting answer. Like a little grasshopper just <laughs> That's a good summary. Yeah. Well, before I sort of go on to sort of talk about your careers and how I'm, I'm very, I mean, I'm very interested to, to ask you about it, especially about being a doctor and stuff and then translating that to the creative industries and obviously your film. But another question we ask is about people's favourite words and phrases from where they're from. So do you both have a favourite word or phrase from where you grew up? So I was thinking about this and I don't really know if I have one, but I was thinking of a very British phrase that I hear my friends from London say a lot. And I think it's probably in a pickle. I love that one. You're in a pickle. But I do have a favourite kind of creative quote, if that's Okay, counts. yeah, no, please. I, I love a creative it's quote on the podcast. But it's from someone, Deborah Francis White, who does the Guilty Feminist. And mm. she lives in London, so I think it technically counts. And this, the kind of quote that I kind of live by in my work, and that's that the hero of your stories is a vehicle for empathy. So I love that because it can be kind of help people empathise with different lifestyles and different people that they would never come across or expose you to that you wouldn't normally be exposed to if that makes sense yeah no that's a that's a great quote I don't I don't know if I've heard that it quite put like that I've heard similar things but I really really like that so thank you Molly for sharing and um, what about you Pav do you have a favorite word or phrase from your from? I have like a billion I think like, <laughs> I just have quotes the one that's just actually popped in my head which I didn't think I mentioned is just a really simple one it's like hard work always pays off and I'm a big mm. believer in that and I'm a big believer I think especially as a woman I think we have to work harder but I always yeah. think if you work hard at some point it always comes back to you and it always does come yeah. back and I do believe no matter what you're trying to do in life you just work hard and be disciplined you will get what you want yeah well that, that's um very true as well and something again like uh, there's an advice question later in the podcast but both of your quotes actually almost answer that question a little bit as well because they are both very like wise little words do you have like a favorite word like just in general as well Pat? like like as in like uh something that maybe your mum or dad said when you grew up or something like that I don't know if it's a favorite word it's more of a noise it's like <laughs> I, no I don't I'm not even... you're all good you're all good no 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 I mean, I don't have shame, but I, I will have shame now. No, <laughs> Molly would have. <laughs> well, no, I've answered mine in a pickle. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good get out. It's a good get out that. <laughs> no, I mean, one thing I will say, and it's more of a serious one, is call k-a-u-r because that actually represents so my family seek and what that means mm. is every woman that's born their middle name has course so i'm pavinda core shergal and every man is i don't know mr something sing whatever and mm. basically it, it really i love that because a lot of people don't know about that and core means princess so i love that every girl <laughs> born actually princess and every guy sing means lion and it's really funny because in film you always have a mr sing mr sing but no one knows what sing means they just throw it mm. around but it means lion and it goes yeah. back to being warrior um because sikhs in india are seen as warriors so mm. i always find it really i love those kind of like 
you know, words actually have a lot of meaning and it's systemically, it's historical yeah. um, and it's really powerful. So I, I love that word, cool. That's a brilliant answer. Yeah, that's great. And I apologize for trying to make you make a noise there on the podcast as well, but thank you for the answers. <laughs> like, cheers, later, yeah. very, I very... think her facial expressions would have been better than that. I know, it's a shame we don't do video, but, um, you know, we'll <laughs> have to just, we got to see it. Well, I suppose like next to sort of move on would be to sort of your careers and sort of early stages of your career as well, because it's really interesting for creative people listening it's just to hear how other people's sort of career paths panned out and the sort of things that, that happened with them because what we'd learned on this podcast and I'm sure a lot of the listeners will get this as well there's, there's no right path in this industry everyone's path's totally different there's no rule like everyone everyone has their own individual paths but what was sort of your first steps after school so do you remember like Molly like when you were in high school so what did you go off to do at uni and things what or if you even went to uni I'm just assuming that I'd, I think I know you did because I read that earlier so I'm, was it just assuming <laughs> but like, what were your sort of next steps there yeah so I when I was at school I knew I wanted to do something creative but then weirdly all right I either wanted to do something in theatre and film world or I wanted to be a barrister so <laughs> very different but kind of similar because being a barrister is kind of like performing but uh, very different so I went to uni and picked a degree that I could do either okay. so I did English and history of art so that then I was like oh they both could translate to either but then when I was at uni I started working in development interning at some production companies and I just loved that kind of felt like English literature as a job to me which I loved and then when I left uni I started going back to my writing more I kind of put it away while I was at uni and then I did some screenwriting courses at some film schools. And then that kind of led to me being interested in directing. So then I did a directing course. And as soon as I did that, I was like, no, this is where I need to be. This is my job. So then I started working as a runner and then doing some research on the side and kind of working in development on the side of that and doing some mm. casting and then when I got more on sets after being a runner, I kind of worked a little bit as a producer and production manager and an AD, so assistant director. I did that and I still do ADing now today. I don't, now I've directed my own things. I'm like, oh, can I go back to it? But, um, <laughs> yeah, I still love it. It's great, but it's so different. And it's what I maintain as if one of the most, if not the most toughest jobs to do on set you're yeah. everyone's the enemy everyone oh yeah <laughs> gotta keep everyone in check and no one likes you and it's just it's not fun but and everything's kind of on your shoulders but then yeah and then I was lucky enough to kind of meet the right people through networking and working as an AD so I said that's how I met Pav and then got the opportunities to direct my own films mm. no that's very interesting what in that sort of journey because obviously you're working you're doing lots of different jobs and sets and like in development which is what I do now so I find you know I love development stuff it's really interesting I could talk for hours about that as a as a job yeah, and yeah. stuff but when you were doing that were you always like sort of at the back here like I'd quite like to direct and write my own stuff was that always the sort of goal yeah so when I was a script reader I found it really difficult to pass the project on because obviously when you're in development you work on it and then it goes on to the production team and I and it kind of goes on to pre-production and you're not really anything to do with that most of the time and I just felt like I want to follow this process the whole way through mm. so I was kind of searching for a job where you could do that where you could be there from the beginning all the way to the end and for me that is writing and directing because you can make the script yourself and then go through the whole process right to the edit but yeah so I just found it hard to put down when I was reading a script and I liked it and was writing about it I'd constantly be thinking this is how I'd make it this is what I wanted yeah, to look yeah. like this would it and it's like 
you know, that's what made me think, oh, I want to do other stuff. And doing research as well, I enjoy. And after doing the degree that I did, that helped a lot. But it was still like, okay, now I want to work out how you can use that research. And then I got my own camera. So I started self-shooting some documentaries, which is also Mm. kind of what I used to dip my toe in and start just making my own work. And I released my first, well, I didn't actually release it. I filmed my first documentary just before COVID. So it was really tough because then I was just stuck with all this stuff, all these ideas that I wanted to film and then couldn't do anything. But I was really lucky I got a job directing a web series over COVID and then working again for a production company doing research. So I was super lucky throughout the lockdowns. But yeah, sorry, that was very long-winded. No, no, it's it's very interesting. I will come back and ask you more about that documentary in a sec. I'm going to go over to Pav about her early career stuff. But we'll come yeah. back to the documentary. If I forget, remind me as well. It sounds very interesting. But Pav, like... Molly's an amazing writer and director, FYI. If anyone gets to work with her, she's like the most elegant director ever. Like, I haven't paid to say that, I promise. Yeah, big up, big up. <laughs> My career journey, right? Um, yeah, I'm going to try and keep this in a nutshell because it's... Yeah, I don't know how to. It's so interesting, though. It's so interesting. I'm I'm very intrigued. So I've always, since I think it's the first memory, I've always wanted to be an actor. And it's something I always say, you don't choose creativity, it chooses you, right? You can't Mm. help it. um, And it's what you love. And so I was about three, four years old and I knew this is what I want. So growing up, I'm also a realist. And, you know, I, I do think I am intelligent. And I see things how they are. And I'm not a Bollywood actress. You know, I grew up with Hollywood. I grew up with Hollywood films. I'm British. My mum and dad are British. So I, I knew, and that's not a negative. I just knew realistically for me to get, as a woman, a woman of colour and an Indian woman, yeah. it would be very difficult in Hollywood. And also I don't, you know, I'm not a you know typical beauty and what Hollywood would see when I was growing up so I knew if I was going to go in the acting career I would have to have other skills to be taken seriously Um, and especially as a woman you know this industry is very male dominated as we know Uh so I thought okay I need to also just work on myself and I was very shy growing up and I thought this industry is going to eat me alive and financially I want to depend on myself you know I want to have something where I can travel the world so I did four A levels and they were all sciences and drama and mm. drama was what like kept me going. <laughs> it was the hardest. It was harder yeah, than yeah. science. I was so shocked. So then I thought, right, do I go to film and acting school now, or do I wait till I have more life experience? I can somehow depend on myself financially in something else, travel the world, but somehow get in through media in that way. So mm. I I really didn't know what to do, but I obviously was very good at science. So I thought, what if I do something like um, medicine media or something like that? Not really clinically being a doctor, because even though you do a medical degree, it doesn't mean you become a sort of frontline worker. You can go in different avenues like laboratory or traveling journalist medicine or whatever. So I did philosophy and I did medicine, which I really, I appreciate they're quite different, but actually I really, I loved it because philosophy made me think very laterally and quite creatively actually. And then when I got my medical degree, I thought, okay, I've got two degrees now. No one can take that away from me. I can travel the world with it. And they are, it's powerful, you know, especially as a woman of color. And I go back to that just because my mum was forced to have an arranged marriage and have mm-hmm. children by the time she was 20. So for me, education is like gold. Um, because my family and especially the women I think that's why it's so ingrained in me they didn't have a choice so I'm very lucky that I don't have to have an arranged marriage and I can have an education so I really value education no matter what it is just because of what my family's gone through and 
So I got my degrees and then I ended up obviously just falling into the NHS as you do. Um, <laughs> I kind of just, you, I just got swept up in it because I was so exhausted from the shifts. I kind of forgot what I wanted. And then I took a year out to kind of just remember who I was and my passion. Um, and in that year out, I started the pseudo name, the secret psychiatrist, because I yeah. worked in the house. And I started being a published writer. So I started writing for magazines and BBC and ITV picked it up and talking about variety of things what it's like to be a woman a woman of color but not in a negative way just a comical way you know like what I see through my eyes what it's like to work in mental health you know all of these kind of things and so my writing was really picking up and then I was like oh I love acting like this is my true love um even though I really I do adore psychiatry and mental health so on my days off and all my shifts and the weekends I went to acting school part-time funded myself through that and then I, well, when I was in acting school I was like wow nothing has changed in this industry <laughs> nothing's changed like yes I've grown up but the industry hasn't so where are all the female writers and directors mm. where are color where's the diversity I was like nothing has changed and that really blew my mind to be honest and I didn't have any connections but I saw all of that in acting school and I was coming to the end of it and I was like you know what, I've now got the confidence, I'm just going to write my own stuff and change the opportunity. If the opportunity is not there, I will create it um, for me and other women. So I started, so when I was in acting school, I wrote a play and it was an NHS dark comedy about Brexit, you know, mental health. And, you know, I only had a female cast. I wrote, directed, produced it, put it on. And that was in 2019. And then really funny, I, I mean, it's ironic, it's not funny. So I was like, I'm going to take two years out of the NHS I had a gut feeling in December 2019 to stay for one more year to help NHS. Wow. And then COVID hit, right? So I extended my contract, COVID hit, and I thought, oh my God, that's I was meant to help, basically. So in 2020, when COVID hit, I was like, okay, I can't make theatre because theatre was like on hold. So I was like, let me make some short films. So I made a short comedy sketch about falling in love So what happened was, I need to explain this. So it was about, <laughs> I was on the tube in London, I was going to work. And I thought, how funny would it be if I had a one night stand with a guy and we woke up with symptoms of COVID and we had to isolate for two weeks together? <laughs> so I thought, this is hilarious. Instead of focusing on the negative, let's focus on the ridiculousness of this situation. So I did the comedy sketch, wrote, literally wrote it on that tube, made it five days later, and BBC picked it up, actually, randomly. They found it, and I won Best Actress, Best Romance for that film. And then um, whilst I was working, I was like, hang on, I can be COVID supervisor in all my films. I don't need to worry. So I can make it safely. So I moved on to a next short film, and I reached out to a friend of mine who wanted to direct, and I said, why don't we write it together? So it was an LGBT mental health horror with all women of colour cast which is in festivals now and then I got really bored because I do get bored easily and I was like I want to make a feature so I just wrote a feature um <laughs> and I went to Amazon and I put all my friends in acting school into it and it's an all person of colour thriller with mental health and I directed it and produced it wrote it starred in it which I thought I'd never do again because it is honestly very stressful to do all of that. But then I did make, I got commissioned to make another feature. So I did all of that again and that went to Amazon and that was about a book about father's mental health. And again, I put my friends on it. And then, so that was all 2020. And wow. Then, <laughs> no. <laughs> 
You're so busy. And she was a doctor during a global pandemic. This is fascinating. No, I think it's just because I always take the mentality and I say it with bitterness, like because I treat every project like as an NHS patient, I I get the script done straight away. I don't like hesitate or get really stressed about it. And then I think, what's the worst that's going to happen? And this is a bit morbid, but I think no one's going to die if no one likes Mm. my film. Like you just, Mm. it's a bad review. So what? Whereas the NHS keeps me grounded because that's, real life problems I feel and creativity I see as a privilege and so I always keep that mentality so then in 2021 that's when I met Molly which I can't believe was just last (laughs) year anyway um, so I met Molly and I was like you know what I really want to do is actually work with other women and you know put other women and boost each other and I loved working with Molly and it was only a few days but I think sometimes when you connect with another filmmaker it's it's just I always say with Molly it's meant to be and then yeah I reached out to her and she was so like yes like let's like talk and then and then we made 12 and like that's been a variety that went in the sun BBC News came out press run and I think it's because there's actually something very special having a filmmaker and a doctor you know mental health expert come together and in film loads of films deal with mental health but they don't have mental health specialists so I think yeah. just coming together was really beautiful and the NHS have supported us and the Royal College has supported us as well which is incredible so I, I really think there's something about joining forces in two industries and you know I always think the NHS isn't different to the industry actually because you have a director you have a consultant the doctors, you just learn a bunch of lines in the textbook. It's like a script and then do it. Mm. And then you have and then um, you can make something very beautiful. So that's kind of my story. So at the moment, I'm still in the NHS because I don't know. I feel bad to leave during COVID. But, that's very um, fair. A little bit. And then, um, yeah, but um, so I do a bit of everything, basically. Yeah. Wow. No, I'm, I'm, I sometimes when I'm doing yeah. this podcast, forget that I'm actually interviewing people because I'm like, I feel like I'm listening to yeah. podcasts myself, which is yeah. and I mean, that is a, um, a, a great compliment to both of you. There's a lot to unpack in that because there's so much going on, obviously, which is really interesting. What's really also quite interesting is on last week's episode or this week it came out I interviewed somebody called Gemma Barnett who's a spoken word artist and stuff and she used to work for the NHS as well and she actually wrote a poem she worked uh, as a receptionist so a totally different side of it but we had a very very interesting conversation about the arts and the NHS and how they sort of blend over each other because I worked I've worked in care for five years as well as a social care worker so like again I know that like the arts and this sort of in, like they, they do overlap so I find that really really interesting I love the way that you're talking about how like you're using skills as a doctor and like and your art and stuff as well I think I just find that so interesting yeah and people and you know I you know the producing I think it's you're just a doctor like you've just got to be organized sort things out things go wrong and you sort it out like I think they're so similar and I think all the skills I've had as a doctor is why I'm able to do all these other things as well. And I think it's really, it's really helped me. Like for now, I can write a feature film in a weekend because I have to write mm. a court report, you know, for the judge in like a day. So now it's just like, I just get it done. So I think they're really, they do overlink. And especially psychiatry, mental health, you've got to have a lot of creativity to understand your patients. Um, and you've really got to be a bit open-minded rather than rigid. So I think it's, yeah. And I think it's made me a better doctor actually being so creative mm. and in that way um, because I've actually made a film I made a documentary with my patients last year where they were the cast and all the staff were the crew and it was like and it, it means a lot because for, if you imagine mental health patients some of them have been there for 20 years and they were like this is the best day of their life because if you think about also the pandemic we have depended on film theatre podcast radio like that is what's kept everyone going 
So I think that the future is really bright and something I really want to do with NHS is actually make it more creative, more digital friendly, mm. and sort of modern thinking. I think times have gone where we can't expect patients to come into a room and speak to a doctor. I think now we need to use social media we need to use podcasts and come to that yeah yeah 100 this is all really interesting you sort of started answering a question i was about to ask which is about do you think that the nhs can learn from in the opposite way that they can take on board like the arts and stuff which you're just saying because one of my favorite podcasts is called uh, feel better live more and it's all about like you know using he's like you, you know he's a doctor but he's using like podcasting as a medium to communicate like a message about how people can feel better live more basically and i think that works so effectively and i, I you know i think as you're saying there is definitely an opportunity there which I find so interesting no absolutely like um so I went to parliament like two years ago and we spoke about social media so obviously when we were growing up like especially when I was growing up we didn't have a phone you know we had like that huge tv that was like a box and like you had to <laughs> yeah, yeah. but times are different and I think we have to, the NHS like I love what it stands for but it's a dinosaur just like the industry is a dinosaur and it needs up it needs vamping up mm. so I think this is the time social media technology is moving and we have to move with it you know young people now they have apps they have iPhones they do they get all their information on Instagram TikTok you know Twitter so I think we instead of making it our enemy we as clinicians have to make it our friends so we have to get you know Samaritans on or we have to get NHS websites going on there so when people know where to go and I think there's a lot of power in technology and we have to realize that's the future and the way we work has to be different so a lot of the young doctors are you know agreeing with that but it's the older generation that obviously have the control just like in the industry it's Mm. the older generation that we need to kind of have these conversations with and it isn't our enemy it is the future um and there's a lot to be done and children you know children aren't going to go see a doctor they they don't read a leaflet you know they're gonna want to watch cbb's or they're gonna want to like have a song and a dance somewhere yeah kids like four years old they have a phone so Mm -hmm. um i think we need to work with it and i think the nhs can and that's why i'm really passionate about having not just first aiders but mental health aiders on film yeah i think yeah yeah do um and we're not separate industries I think having the healthcare with the creative industry I think there's a lot of power music therapy art therapy dance therapy there's a lot to be done and we need to be incorporating it actually behind the walls of the NHS 100% 100% and very quickly before we jump off I just wanted to open this up because I I apologize Molly that I've I've not really spoke to you like five minutes time (laughs) just making sure you're okay I just wondered like how you feel as a filmmaker about like what we were sort of talking about as well how from the other side of it do you how do you sort of feel about all this so what everyone loved about what we did with 12 and I very much took Parv's lead on this is the film is dealing with a very intense psychological issues and I feel like no one gets looked after on these films that you know you kind of deal with especially actors they have to get in that zone and live that life of you know a suicidal character a character who's had been abused and then suddenly they're expected to go home and be fine So what we did with 12 and we were really passionate about doing this was we said, you know, and Pav had, we had some other doctors on set for some of the time as well. Mm. So Pav said, you know, if you're affected by anything, you can leave, let us know if you want to talk to Pav as a mental health specialist or any of the other doctors on set. And I think all of our crew, the feedback from that was incredible. And even for crew not to do with you know sensitive topics I think you worked so hard ridiculous hours the stress under um not even to add in the kind of abusive nature of some kind Mm. of 
some of the people that's kind of filtered in through the industry, I think it's so important. So when Pav was kind of talking about this, I think it's a real light bulb went off and we were like, why is no one doing this? And I think yeah. every step should really learn from that. A hundred percent. I totally agree. And I, I'm, I've done the mental health first aid course before and it was amazing. I love doing it. I, I was lucky I got to do it for my care job, but like I've applied it so often in my work in this industry and like, what will I, I mean, I'm a little bit biased because I work for the company, but what my sort of work STV drama, I think are really great for stuff like that about like sort of being really kind to us and talking about mental health and saying, how are you guys today? Do you feel okay? Like, and when we, you know, we just brought out Screw on Channel 4 um, last month. Uh, the prison drama and like when they made that they put so much like resources into me- things like mental health and research and storylines with doc- real doctors real experts in prisons just things like that so yeah I think this industry can learn so much more and I love that style of filmmaking it's really interesting the way Paul put it to me was you know in other companies and the NHS where she works there's HR there's nothing in <laughs> film because everyone's freelancers so to have someone on set that you feel safe going to speak to about any issue I think is so powerful yeah it's so so powerful hello it's Jamie here you may have heard this advert several times before but if not this is basically just me taking a minute to remind you guys that if you're enjoying the podcast, there are a number of things you can do to help us keep growing. Now, as many of you might be aware, the podcasting landscape is incredibly saturated. And I mean, there's lots of podcasts. We all love podcasts. But it's very difficult for independent podcasts like us to sometimes break through and to be noticed. So doing things like sharing us on social media, word of mouth, and just telling friends and family to listen, or even leaving us a little five-star review on places like Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts go so far in helping us to keep growing me and Elliot adore this podcast we love making this podcast so if you're able to help in any way by doing something like that we'd be incredibly grateful not just for our podcast but if you love any independent podcasts please try and give them a wee share or give them a review because it it goes so far another thing you can do if you enjoy the podcast as well and we appreciate that this is a very difficult time but if you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us you can donate as little or as much as you like to our patreon page and you can do that by going to patreon.com slash just get a real job or you can click the link in the show notes anything you can afford we are very grateful for thank you for your continued support and i hope you enjoy the rest of today's episode Well, I've got lots, lots more to sort of talk to you guys about, but I'm quickly going to go back to Molly's documentary because I did promise I would go back to that. So do you mind just quickly talking a bit about like the documentary you did and stuff? Yeah, so the documentaries I do tend to be more passion projects. So I haven't put them into festivals or anything. They're more just because they're stories that I want to get out there. I'm working on a few more kind of bigger scale ones as directing, like directing, whereas my ones I kind of produce, write, do everything for. But I've released this series. It's a three-part series about microaggressions. So the first one I filmed before COVID and it was about racist microaggressions. And that's called Where Are You Really From? And then I released that during COVID. And then the second part I, has just come out as well. And that's called That's So Gay. And that's about microaggressions towards the queer community. And then the third part, which I'm in kind of pre-production, loose pre-production for, is about sexist microaggressions. And then, so that's been my main kind of documentary mm-hmm. focus. But I also got asked by a production company to do a film, which was not my kind of area at all, but it was really fun doing. So it was about AI and democracy, which I love doing actually featured in that one as a girl with phone walking down the street 
the starring role. That was yeah. the hardest role of my life. But yeah, so I kind of a mixed bag really, but drama is really where my heart is. Yeah. Oh, I love I love how creative you both are and how many like ongoing projects yeah. in different places you have going on. It's really exciting. That's great. I also as I know we t- touched on this when we were talking about Pav and, and your sort of uh, the NHS stuff is and mental health is obviously a big theme in your work. But I kind of wanted to talk to you both about a few things. Like first I wanted to, we kind of touched on mental health on sets and stuff. So the first sort of part of this question is about like mental health in your work. And then after that, we'll, obviously we can go on to talk more about 12 as well. But like how, why is that something that you've both just always been quite passionate about? And it seems to have just manifested in your work. And um, we'll start with you, Bolly. <laughs> so I just, I've always written stories that have been kind of heavily had mental health themes have been kind of heavily featured in it and I think internal worlds being expressed through film is so interesting and I think Pav and I are both kind of on the same page that we want to change the perception of mental health especially in film it's always very stereotyped and radicalized and sensationalized so if you look at uh, Pav and I the other day were talking about split personality disorder is that right yeah and then if you look at the films that portray that it's so dangerous that portrayal of real people who aren't harmful to others or you know it's just so we want to change that stigma around it as well and make sure that we could get people talking about it so my mum works in mental health so I'm quite passionate about that through her and then Pa works in mental health so it kind of all coincided our interests in marginalized people women and then also mental health really and we just want to tell those stories no it's very very interesting and I I totally agree with what you're saying about the stigma that exists in film and tv and media in general like there is so many like I was just when you talked about that there I thought that that film split which is all about like basically that and like you know you're so right that there there isn't an accurate representation of that on screen enough Mm -hmm. yeah and as Pav mentioned earlier, these films rarely have professionals, health professionals behind them, advising mm. them or on set being like, this is a dangerous portrayal of you know yeah. what you're doing and the harm that it has for people living with those things means that the stigma is built up even more and they're mm. even less likely to talk about it. So thankfully now um, there's been a big movement for things like depression and anxiety to be a lot less stigmatised, but things like yeah. eating disorders, especially eating disorders for men and different cultures we found when we were doing research for the film is still so prevalent so Mm. and then other disorders like PAV I'm sure we'll be able to speak to this much more eloquently than me but bipolar disorder is another one that's constantly portrayed in a very negative and unfair way I would say yeah no that's it to say you don't I don't think people realize how influential media is to people's Mm. perceptions of things it's actually insane and like again to bring up work and like screw and stuff just because it's a very good example because when they did screw as well like we one of the main people they worked I say we I wasn't even at the company when they made it but like you know they (laughs) take the credit take the credit yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) that they worked very very close with like UK Muslim Film which is an amazing organisation and they advised heavily on that's an example of one of the main things they had advisors on set for which was all about the portrayal of like you know Muslim characters on screen and things and like I got to go to some training at work about that and it was actually mental how much media affects people's how they see the world and how they view people and stuff it, it, it kind of blew my mind in a way so like I think this is such an interesting subject in general and something I've not spoke about on the podcast yet so I'm very glad that you two have sort of raised this 
but I'll let you sort of go into that a bit more, Pav, on expanding what Molly was saying. So I'm sure yeah, you'll have I mean, great things to say. I completely echo what you're both saying. I think it's just natural because I work in mental health. Uh, my general passion is psychiatry and the unconscious and, you know, our mind. And if you think about film anyway in theatre, even Shakespeare, it, there's mental health everywhere, actually, and you don't realise it. And I think a lot of um, directors and writers, they don't realise they're actually writing about mental health. If you think about, like, we take a superhero film, there's always an arc, right? There's always something goes wrong with the villain. You have some sort of anxiety build up and then the mm. superhero saves the day. Right? I'm, I'm simplifying it, but there's always mental health there. And what you were saying, I completely agree with, especially during the pandemic, we get all of our information on the screen. Whether we realize it or not, we can, we're visual consumers, right? We take everything in, you know, Twitter, reason people are so affected by the news because it's visually, it's traumatizing. We're taking mm. all this in. So when I started, you know, creating at the end of 2019, which was really wasn't that long ago, I thought this, there's something here that we're missing the trick here. Why are we not educating people on the screen, but in an entertaining way? And then they take away a message without realizing. So instead of them walking away and thinking, oh, if I have schizophrenia, I'm a murderer, because that's what a lot of people do, right? And a lot of actors I've noticed and I've worked with them, they want to play the schizophrenic because they think you hold a knife and then you're out there with your hands and you're talking to voices everywhere. When do you ever see that on the street, right? You never see that on the street because that is actually a tiny percentage. So we already are conditioned from a very young age to think mental health is dangerous. So an example I always give hypothetically, if you're on a bus, and you see someone talking to themselves, are you going to sit next to that person? Are you going to sit next to them or sit next to the person that's not? Most of the time, people are not going to sit with that person, right? So we're already trained when we're very young. And then I always say to people, if you had a surgeon and you found out they had schizophrenia, would you let them operate on you? A lot of people are going to say no. So without realizing, we're educating children and as parents straight away that mental health. And when for some reason, people go to schizophrenia straight away, schizophrenia, bipolar, anxiety, depression, those are like the four things that people go to and that there's a concern there but um what I thought was let's start educating it on the screen and especially 12 is so important because when we think eating disorder we think 16 year old Caucasian ballerina that is just typically where our mind normally goes right mm. and what people don't realize is you can be of any ethnicity any age you can be over 60 and it's actually the day-to-day -day subtlety of dealing with mental health because we all have mental health, like we all have physical health, right? So your blood pressure, I always give an example of this, your blood pressure is in a range and it goes up and it goes down and it goes back to normal. Same with our mental health. And um, the beauty about 12 is it's not taking the dramatic fantasy of escalating to binge eating or losing all this weight and then you have this fantastical story that is not real but it's actually the day-to-day -day struggles you know the day-to-day -day struggles of actually just walking somewhere meeting someone mm. new the conversations you have the internalization because it's all internal and that's what we want to do with 12 we want to normalize mental health but also cinematically tell a beautiful film and I think you can do both you know you can still you know as a filmmaker be really proud of what you've done and think this is a beautiful piece of artwork but also medically be like I've done a good job and the fact that we have done that is it you know what other film do you know that has support from the NHS plus filmmakers like there's something there and I think you know I'm very passionate about it but also like you know in the films I've made why do we not have more women in the lead roles of these mental health films it's very male dominated why yeah. 
there's there's a big conversation about that and one of the films I did the link because I try to make very interesting but also diagnosis we've not heard of so like actually going to phantom so it's about pseudocesis which is phantom pregnancy so a lot of people don't realize you know your body tricks your mind into having a phantom pregnancy that mental health um, condition but I was like why, why do we can make it interesting horror here but actually you're yeah. educating the audience in realizing that's a diagnosis and they can pick up the signs quicker if someone's pregnant or thinks they're pregnant or trauma. So I think there's just a lot we can do. It's actually a very powerful tool. And I think as creatives, we're in such a unique, powerful position of responsibility of what we put out there people digest it. And I think especially for young kids, they go to the cinema with mom and dad. You know, I used to sneak in to like <laughs> over 12 films and I was little, I'm sure lots of people did, but you're actually educating the next generation of filmmakers and creatives um, as well as your global population. And I always think it's free. Why yeah. wouldn't you? Like as an NHS, I don't need to book only five patients. I, I can show this film and boom, you know, you've educated the world. And, you know, no matter where you are in the world, in Peru, I remember I was in the jungle and somehow in a jungle, they had like a huge projector. And I was like, where are they getting all these films from? But you don't know who's going to see it. And I think we need to normalize it as well. Um, I could talk about this for ages, but I'll, I'll be quiet in a minute. But we need to normalize it. So when you look at the NHS and you're known healthcare, you don't just see Caucasian men yeah you see women you see people disabilities you'll see autism you'll see you'll see a variety of things you'll see someone like me you know a brown woman oh my god like but why in film we don't do that you know molly a director a woman what so i think you know we need to normalize it just as we would in the hospital normalize that because film unless it's a fantasy which should say this is a superhero film and obviously you know Films is meant to take you to a different normality of someone else's life. So we need to represent that. A hundred percent. And thank you for speaking with that with so much passion and, and enthusiasm as well. Like genuinely, like it's great to be able to have this conversation on the podcast. And, I, you know, we'd, I know we don't have enough time to keep it here you know, to really go into it even more. And like, I think this could be a whole podcast episode on its own, to be honest. It's such an interesting topic. And, you know, it's, I'm glad people are getting to hear it. And I sort of, yeah, I, I totally concur with everything you've both said about it. And I, it's something I, I could also talk about for even longer. I have a question as well. I want, really wanted to talk to you both about being sort of women in the industry because obviously that's very important but I think we should come to your film first and then we'll go into that because I feel like you know you both want to promote the film as well and things and like I'd like to give you time to do it too so you've sort of alluded to it a few times but what tell us about 12 and and what it's about and things so I'll let I'll let you start with that Molly as the director of the film thank you yeah usually I'm not the one doing the promotion I'm not put in charge of that usually it's Parv so she's much more well rehearsed than me so I was as Parv said we kind of met and then she came to me wanting to work together again and I'd been sitting on this script that I wrote in like a day or something years ago and put it away and didn't think about it and then Paul said look I want to do a diverse film about mental health and I was like oh I have the perfect thing so my idea was that it's all these people from all different backgrounds come and meet in this eating disorders anonymous meeting group so they're all kind of thrown together and as Paul and I kind of hinted before it's just such an eclectic mix of people, as is the truth of people that actually suffer from eating disorders. And it's not just the stereotypical, you know, young teenage girls with anorexia, it's people with orthorexia and people as well who, if you see them in the street, you'd make a judgment and wouldn't assume that they have an eating disorder. So it's things like that. And then I just thought it was really important as well to talk about the way that men interact with mental health and eating disorders specifically, because there's such a stigma around it. 
anyway, but especially for men, I think. But yeah, and then we started working on it and it kind of took off from there, really. But it follows Ravina, who Parvinda plays, and she's attending her first session. Brilliant. And obviously, I know this film isn't out yet, is it? It doesn't come out till August officially, because obviously you've got to do the festival circuit and things, right? Yeah, it probably won't come out until early next year, to be honest. Cool, cool. That's... Ones, we're being quite aggressive with it. So it's no, no, good. that's fine. But like, I will obviously in the show notes of this podcast, listeners will know whenever we have guests on, there'll be links to the sort of Instagram page for it and the trailer and yeah. things um, and all your other work, obviously, as well. Thank but it, it sounds very, very interesting. And I look forward to seeing it. And um, I will let obviously you as well, Pav, sort of talk about the film too, because I'm sure you've got lots to say. Yeah, I mean, completely just going on to what Molly said, I think also just not just the importance of the film, Film, just the subtlety of eating disorders and mental health. We had, I think it was 22 women and only eight men and majority of the heads of department were all women. And, uh, you know, I think there's something to be said about that. It was the only set I've ever been on where it was majority female and it was such a privilege. And we had a lot of compliments from it because even the set vibe, you know, it was incredibly calm. Um, there was a lot of respect and kindness. And I think, you know, as Molly said, we had doctors that came from the NHS consultants that came to support it to make sure everyone was okay and COVID safe. And, you know, BBC actually came on set as well. And it was Amazing. BBC Asia Network took a real interest in this because they were like, this is the first time we have a South Asian lead, you know, in a British like drama like this. And we had, you know, incredible um, creatives part of it. Duncan James, Leslie Ash, Ali Bastian. We had Ghana, who's a female DOP, who's brilliant, part of BAFTA crew. We had amazing women. And I think, honestly, it's a, it's almost like a ripple effect. I feel like it's you saw the change in the industry on both sides, and it was something very beautiful about it. And I think 12 will always be something very special because I think there's something very magical when you join forces with someone. And Molly, I feel like she and I, it's almost like, oh, God, I'm going to get mushy. But it's almost like a yin-yang. Like, honestly, we it was the first time we've ever dealt with a film, and it was so ethically correct. Like, we were so mm. open and honest the whole time and made sure everyone was okay. And I feel like... I'm really proud of what we've done because end of the day, even if one person, that's helped one person, we've done an incredible job. Instead of the subtlety of the film, there's something very beautiful about that. And I really hope that's the future of cinema because I think actually being subtle in cinema is harder than actually creating a fantasy on screen. So it's very exciting. And the future of 12, I mean, we have a lot of hopes for it to be a series one day. Um, it could be lots of different things and also branching off different characters for children, for older generation. Mm. I mean, there's just so much you can do with it. And the fact that we had so many different ethnicities, different communities really connected with that. You know, we had a black actor who played a very pivotal role as well. And I know coming from a marginalized community, what that does when you see someone representing you and you're more likely to get help as well so I'm really excited about it and the opportunity for women and that inclusivity as well because some of our actors and crew they had disabilities as well and we're very open to that part of the LGBT community so I really feel this is the future of film and tv and how I feel all production should be yeah 100 percent and this is it's just very inspiring as well i can sort of feel the energy of you both again without sounding mushy myself but like it is genuinely i love the way that you've both worked together and like this sort of collaborative nature of it and, and and you're right i think this is the future of filmmaking and, and tv i think i love this sort of collaborative element of it and the sort of idea of using experts to give advice and making sure everyone's okay and representation and stuff i just think you know that's really inspiring and it's great to have people like that on this podcast and and to, to sort of speak to you both about it and on that note of representation as well, I sort of, I feel like it's an important thing to, for me to ask you both. And, and Molly might have known this because I know you were saying to me off air that you'd been listening to the episode with Hannah Curry, who's an amazing Scottish documentary filmmaker. But 
we had a great conversation a few weeks ago about sort of how things in the industry are still not good enough for women, but they're getting better and stuff. So I wondered, like, if you could both talk about your experiences of that in the industry and, and if you do think it's getting better and what needs to change still, etc. So, yeah, I think, as you said, it is getting better in certain departments more than others. There's still hardly any women or people of marginalised genders as directors like I've not come across many and if it is it's people struggling to kind of get past that glass ceiling really I've still been on multiple sets in the past two years where I've been the only woman on set and that's like sets of like 20 people so it is still not the way it should be and also the kind of bullying that goes around along like the kind of sexualization is still I've heard lots of bad stories and there's various Instagram accounts dedicated yeah. to that so I think that really shows what's still going on and even at the levels that we're kind of at it's not just the big studios doing this it's every it's from the bottom up but Pav and I always talk about one thing that is always projected onto women and other marginalized groups like disabled people and people of color is that or anyone within the LGBTQ plus community is that there's only space for one of us in there so it's kind of curate, it's kind of curated this dangerous environment where everyone's it's a competitive industry as it is but within that it's even more so because you're kind of fighting the people that should be your peers and you should be supporting each other off so Parv and I have always found that everyone thinks there's just that one space for me so if I help someone else up like if I pull them up they're taking my spot when mm. in actual fact there's space for everyone but we're just made to believe that there's not so Parv and I are both big on promoting other people and their work as well and 100%. if I get sent messages or if we see things like casting opportunities even though Parv's an actor as well she'll still send it to other actors being like oh you should audition for this too yeah. or I do the same and I think that's so important so I just think a way to make it better is for us all to support each other when we're coming up and then when we get to the top we can change it from the top down but yeah. I think that's something we can do for now no 100 percent. i never get this i know i know it's sort of not people's fault though because it is almost like an industry yeah. systematic thing that you're sort of meant to think like it's very competitive and you're you have yeah. to fight for yourself but i've never got this sort of attitude that and i've never sort of practiced it myself but you know whenever if i apply for a job sometimes you know you send it to the people too and you work together yeah. as a team like I, I mean this podcast is an example of that like the amount of things that other people have done for me because just because I've spoke to them as well it's a community you've got to support each other and you know I'd, I'd sort of hate this idea that people are in competition with each other because there's enough success to go around everyone there's enough jobs to go around everyone as you say so I, again I think that's a very important point to sort of highlight yeah. so yeah thank and you for I found that it kind of always comes back to you as well if you have that yeah. because then you get known for being an approachable good person that helps people out and like you know I've been approached a lot for advice and stuff some people won't even entertain that they will just be like it's not worth my time you can't kind of help me back but I think it's so important to do and then it always comes back to you. So you'll, you know, you'll send something to someone and then like two years later, they'll be like, oh, I saw this and thought of you. And because you helped them, they're willing yeah. to help you out, yeah. which is nice. And I think you just learn from other people as well. I mean, it's yeah. good to just, just other, like, for example, right now, like I'm learning things with just speaking to you both that will apply to me and my career and my general day-to-day -day life. So it's just, that's a brilliant thing. So I never get the sort of need to push people away, 100%. And in this industry, you get pushed back so much and you get... You have to be so resilient. So you just should support each other yeah. as much as possible. 
hundred percent. But Pav as well, like I just sort of wanted to open this up to you as well about like sort of representation and how how your experience has been as a woman in this industry and and if you think it can get better, etc. And what needs to change? Yeah, I mean, as I said, I don't think much has changed. <laughs> um, but there is there is a bubble, like as in the bubbles are happening. Like, and I think if we think about what's happened in the last two years, you know, Black Lives Matter, that's really changed Me Too movement. A, a lot is changing. There's a lot to be done, but I think. I still feel, and it's weird because I always feel like, oh, I've just got everything against me, you know, because I'm a woman, I'm brown, you know, what else? Like it's, I'm just a tick box for everything all the time. Yeah, I don't, I personally, I am a competitive person because I'm a doctor, but creatively you can't do it alone. And I think you need to not have an ego about it. Like, you know, Molly and I are a perfect example. Like I could have looked at Molly and thought, this is a woman who's also a director, I'm competing, but you can't have that sort of um, attitude. And I think because I've come into the industry a bit older and I, I think I've grown up a bit, I see that very clearly. So I think there's something very beautiful about collaboration. And especially as a woman, we have to depend on each other to lift each other up. No, no one's going to do it for us. So I think, and especially as a creative, you actually can't do it all on your own. You're a team. And I think people forget that. It's not just a director. It's not just the DOP. It's not just the actor. You're collectively the jam together. I think the South Asian community, I think talking specifically about that, there's a lot to be done. They're still very competitive with one another. Like I am someone I will send, I put all of my friends in all of my films, right? it's just something I do I just I don't mm. know why you wouldn't it's that's my mentality like why would yeah. you not have a hand out and through that like a lot of my friends have had their first feature credit they've been on spotlight they've got their agent they've got showreels from it and I will never regret being that kind of person but I think especially in ethnic communities for some reason because it's so hard to come by a role because for some reason in casting and I don't actually know why it matters it will literally say white or black yeah mixed race and when people say mixed race they mean black or white um so when you come across a south asian it's very hard and there's only a token little part but um it's very competitive i've noticed in the south asian community and i think that's the wrong mentality because we're stronger as a collective we have to go together forward together as a group otherwise nothing's going to change and another 10 years you know if i have a daughter it's going to be exactly the same for her so i think now is the time to learn from the mistakes in the past and actually go forth together. Remember why you wanted to be creative. I think when people get to the top, they forget. They forget who they are. And you went into this because you're excited. You want to make something amazing with other people. And you need to keep that childish memory alive and not yeah. forget all the silliness when you get what you want. And don't forget where you come from and forget the people that helped you. But I think there's a lot more to be done. But as again, I can't complain that I don't get roles if I don't give roles to other people who look like me, which is why in every production I do, I make sure there's a lead role of someone of colour. I always make sure because otherwise I'm a hypocrite and I'm not even helping myself yeah. or other people. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, 100%. I totally agree with everything you're saying. And, and, and I'm not expecting either of you to have the answer to this because I know none of us are politicians but like how do you think this can change or what do you have any ideas for like how change can happen I know we're not even in a position where any of us could really change much but I think we can in the extent that we can do it in small ways and we can influence the people around us etc so we do have maybe more of an influence than we think we do sometimes I would say I'm a big big advocate for open casting I don't understand why casting roles are and Pav has seen 
lots of my scripts and I always write them ambiguously. I never yeah. specify yeah. race or anything like that because, you know, I think open casting is a way to go. So instead of thinking, mm. I was even, there was, um, I was working on a Christmas film and they were, was like, we need a white male, a white female. And they could be, you know, they have to look attractive. They have to do, you know, I just, I think it's so archaic. So I think open casting will help. And then, helping people know how to address issues when they see them we have no training like other people get training when they go work at companies and they have as we said earlier hr so if something is going wrong someone's being bullied or someone is being offensive or is being prejudiced against someone or a group of people you have someone to go to in film there's not that and the director is the kind of be all and end all of that authority on set so i tried to make an environment where everyone's comfortable coming to me and I say that at the beginning of all my films when I kind of do my pre-shoot talk is kind of if there are any issues come straight to me and it will be confidential I don't want anyone feeling uncomfortable when if they feel insecure you know if someone's I've had a few instances of people kind of having other people be sexist towards women and then they kind of come straight to me and then it's been dealt with and then I've been on other sets where no one felt comfortable going to the person in charge either that's a producer or a director so it just carried on and got worse so I think teaching people how to confront that issue when there's no authority on the issue because it's so hard if you're on an all-male set and then you're just kind of in this horrible environment that what like what can you do especially as a young person you don't know who to go to what to say or how to address that and you don't know if it's going to escalate and there's always this kind of fear of being blacklisted and you know people ruining your reputation if you stand up to them yeah 100%. Do you have an answer to that question as well, Pav, about like how things can change? And again, I don't expect you to know the answer because we're not politicians or anything like that. But like, I, you know, I just I'm interested in your opinions. Yeah, I completely agree with uh, what Molly is saying. And I think I want a HR and safeguarding team attached to every mm. single production. Mm. If this is a work, if this is work, then why is that not attached? Every other organisation and job, you would have that. So I think firstly, that needs to be there to so the legal side. Secondly, I completely agree with open casting and also just with the crew as well. So many heads of department are are men. So I just think, I don't know if this is the answer, but making sure 50% are women and 50% are men or non-binary, you know, you need to have that equality there. But I think, yeah, and also not token, tokening. And I'm speaking as a woman, but I've, I've gone to a set where, you know, they want me to have an Indian accent. And it's like, I don't know a single woman my age in Britain that has an Indian accent. So I think the writers, if you're writing something, then actually get the people of that colour or that culture involved. You know, don't have a white man writing about an Indian family in Britain who's at a corner shop. So I think those days are gone. And I think there's a lot that we can be done in the crew and at the top. And I think if you're an independent person and you're making your own productions, you have a lot of power because how I see it is the people at the top, they're going to retire or pass away, you know, and we're going to replace them. So <laughs> I'm a bit morbid, but that's the future. So we are the future coming in. Yeah. So I think make it your responsibility to be the change now and what you want the future to be because you will be coming up and that is what the set will look like. So I think it's a really bright future, but I think we, again, it's coming back to you. Just remember who you are. Remember your ethics. Remember what is right and wrong and don't be afraid to say that um yeah. end of the day creatives are just people okay and this industry is so open and 
watering like you can come in and out of this industry we have criminals that are creatives you know so don't be afraid to say something and say what is wrong because I've been on a set where someone didn't remember my name they just said India you know and so like and the thing is no one says anything and no one sticks up for me and I shouldn't be the victim having to say something we should collectively remember we all have responsibility yeah Yeah, 100% thank you both as well for your answer like I think this is actually very inspiring and I hope it inspires other people listening as well and it's it's so true and I'm I'm really happy that we got to sort of talk about this so much on this episode of the podcast it's this has been great I have two more questions for you and but one something I wanted to quickly say in response to those answers as well was that I think this is a great idea I don't know if you'd heard of it but I was speaking to a producer recently who's come up with this app on sets where like every gets an anonymous app and they get every day you rate your sort of experience on set and if you have a really bad day like anonymously somebody will make sure you're okay and i think that's such a great idea and i think that should be on every set person i think that's brilliant i think it should be mandatory as well yeah i'm not saying it's the solution but i think you know things like that really will help so yeah i think that's a really good idea i'll get you to sort of keep this answer quick because I want the last question is more important to me personally for the listeners. But obviously the name of the podcast is Just Get A Real Job. We don't have to work jobs we hated. Um, so I just wonder what your both of you is the worst part-time job you'd ever had to work in your life to sort of support your art. So do you have an answer for this, Bolly? Um, yeah, so I was thinking about this and I've been very lucky with most of my part-time jobs. Worst one though was probably working as an assistant at a theatre company for children just because you had to kind of heard young children about and try and make sure they were quiet when other people were performing so that would I, that would probably be mine yeah what about I you didn't, Pav? I didn't answer that because I've only worked in the NHS <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very that's very very fair that's very fair you've, you've done so many amazing things as well like you've not never had time to like have to work no, so busy <laughs> Well, the last question on the podcast, and you've both given some amazing insights and advice for it, and I genuinely mean that. It's been great. But the last question I sort of get my guests to summarise what their sort of closing advice would be to anyone who wants to get into the creative industries, maybe particularly in the area they work in. So, Molly, what would your sort of closing advice be to anyone listening? So for directors, I would say learn as much as you can about other roles. It would only ever make you a better director. Some directors have no understanding of camera, lighting, or what it takes to be an actor as well, what they go through to kind of get into that headspace so that would be and then as I said earlier kind of resilience learning to sell yourself it's horrible and it's so you know it goes against our nature and what's kind of taught um to us especially I was saying earlier to Jamie women are kind of not taught to sell themselves at all but I think learn to sell yourself because networking and stuff that's what the industry's about and then Pav touched on it earlier just remembering why you're there so remember to reconnect with the story. So I find myself pinching myself when I'm really stressed on set, like I'm here, I'm doing what I wanna do, telling this amazing story. So don't get bogged down in all the stresses and details of it and just really remember why you're there. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you so much for sharing Molly. And Pav, what would your sort of closing advice be to, to the listeners? I I would say try different roles because I think as Molly was saying it's actually really helpful so for me as an actor to be a director I know what the director now needs of me Mm. as an actor and as a director I know what I need from the actor and even like even if it's lighting sound like I I think every skill you learn from every department is really helpful so don't have an ego about that I would just very early on try everything just to get those skills and it helps you whatever you want to do two I would say and it's something I'm learning a lot, look after your health because your routine is so all over the place as a creative. You get up at silly times, go to bed, you eat pizza on set. It's disgusting. <laughs> 
you know, like look after yourself, like, you know, prep your food, look after your well-being, you know, have something that you, grounds you every day because it's an industry that is so impulsive and you lose yourself. Mm. So you yeah. need to really look after yourself with well-being and health. And thirdly, I would say be kind. And I don't just mean to people you're working with, you know, never be rude to anyone, the cleaner, you know, the lighting, costume, makeup, other actors, be kind, but also to yourself. Because I think as creatives, we're so self-critical we're always like, oh, I haven't got whatever, the Oscar, I haven't got this, I'm not good enough. No, that's not the case. And end of the day, you want to look back in life and you're going to remember the memories, the set. You're not going to remember holding this award at all. Mm. You're going to remember who you met. So just be very kind in what you're feeding your mind and the thoughts every day. You are great. And this is an amazing luxury. So enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah brilliant advice as well thank you so much for sharing and i think that's so true again as great as for some reason as creatives we'd never think often that well-being is associated with us but it it totally is and like being on set and working 12 hour days is so bad for your health and like the food's never healthy either a lot of the time so that's i think brilliant advice that's definitely not been spoken about on the podcast enough so far and and being kind to yourself as well is obviously like so so important so thank you both and can I just say is genuinely like this has been an amazing conversation I've loved speaking to you both you're both so again without sounding mushy like very very inspiring to speak to and like credit to what you're doing please keep doing it like the industry needs people like you in it and um to be honest I'm very open about my mental health in this podcast I've not had the best day I've had quite a stressful day I've not felt great (laughs) this has really uplifted me on an individual level so it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for both thank you for having us it's been yeah we could talk for hours I know (laughs) (laughs) so there you have it that was my conversation with Pav and Molly thank you again to them for their time I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the podcast I loved this conversation it was really really inspiring and I hope you enjoyed my terrible attempts at doing the intro this week as well Um, I hope you found that entertaining I've also included a link to Pav and Molly's short film 12 the Instagram page of it in the show notes be sure to go and give them a follow on that and go and support them there's lots of interesting content there as well and as always if you'd enjoyed this week's episode of the podcast be sure to chuck us a follow on social media be sure to subscribe be sure to rate and review us and most importantly be sure to tell other people to listen word of mouth is our greatest tool to keep growing and that is how people find out about us that might not otherwise we also have a patreon page as well so if you can afford to donate as little as a pound a month to that all the money we make goes back into the upkeep of the podcast and there's a link below but anyway that is all we have time for this week we'll be back again next tuesday with another brilliant conversation but in the meantime I hope you have a brilliant week. Just get a read.